Well, I love Indian food, and I didn't always love Indian cuisine. Uh, having grown up in a small town just down the road here on the Gulf Coast, I didn't have the opportunity to experience eating Indian food. There simply were no Indian restaurants around. But when we lived in England, I heard many of my British friends raving about Indian food. But I wrote their comments off because, stereotypically, we understand that the British don't know anything about good food. If you've ever been there uh, in the past, especially a few decades ago, uh, everybody complains that the food is bad. So what could these people know about good food? I mean, it's probably overrated by then. They don't even know what good food is. Eventually, however, I had to try it for myself because I had so much evidence before me in the form of many people testifying that Indian food is excellent and should be delighted in, especially late at night. Uh, I also had the evidence of so many Indian restaurants everywhere. Now, if there were so many and they were all in business, then people were eating there and continuing to eat there, so it must have been good. So we finally broke down and tried it. Now I believe our, our family eats Indian food just about every week. We love Indian food. But I had to open myself up to eating Indian food and try it for myself. That's a little picture of what we have here before us today. Now we've, we've read chapter 8 and it's a, it's a bunch of different little episodes in the life of Christ. But they all hang together and Mark is trying to make a point to us. And I have three things that I want to highlight from this passage. There's a whole lot here, and we're going to go back and look at some of what I read next week. But first of all, I want us to understand that there's a battle going on here against preconceived notions about Christ, who he is, and what he came to do. So there's there's a battle against preconceived notions. And then secondly, there is danger in unbelief. And we'll see that illustrated here in the passage. And finally... We see here that there is healing for spiritual blindness. That's going to frame my remarks this morning about this passage. Now, first of all, there's this battle against preconceived notions. Mark is battling these notions that people have of who Jesus is. we're, We're here at the halfway point in the book of Mark, and the author Mark has been seeking so far to answer this one question. Who is Jesus? And everything that he has put down for us, every event that he has recorded so far about Jesus has been towards this end of helping readers gradually see who Jesus is. In fact, when you look at the book, it has two climactic spots. One we read here this morning and one we'll get to at the end. Uh, One of these climactic spots is here where Peter says, testifies when asked, who do people say that I am? Peter replies, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then at the end of the book, when Jesus is at the cross, uh, you have a Roman centurion testifying again to who Jesus is. He says, as he sees Christ and the phenomena that surround the, the crucifixion, surely this man was the Son of God. So you have, first of all, one of the disciples getting it, understanding who Jesus is, although only partially. 
As you see at the end of the passage, I mean, Peter makes this great testimony to who Jesus is, but then uh, rebukes Jesus because Jesus is talking about how he has to go to the cross. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So Peter is beginning to get it. He doesn't get it all the way. He doesn't fully understand the mission Christ came on. And then at the end of the book, you have uh, not one of his disciples, but a pagan, a Gentile, this Roman centurion, testifying to who Jesus is. First, the disciple understands who he is, and finally, the whole world will see who Jesus is. But up until Peter's confession in 829, you even see the disciples. All the evidence they've been given, all the things that they have seen Jesus do, they still have an amazing lack of comprehension. Jesus, in chapter 6, has already fed 5,000, and here we find them in a, uh, a, the same scenario with all these people out in the wilderness needing food for these people. And they're going through the same amazement, the same questions. They don't just say, hey, Jesus, well, this is the same situation you had back in chapter 6 when you fed 5,000 people. Why don't you just do that again? They don't say that. They say, well, how, where are we going to get bread from? Where, where, where are we going to feed all these people? So they're very spiritually obtuse. They just don't get it. They don't understand. Now, I believe Mark has put these two uh, episodes, the two feedings, uh, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 in his book to make a point about who Jesus is. In chapter 6, we see Jesus feeding 5,000 and then he's in a, he's in a Jewish context. He's, he's in the borders of Israel and he's, and he's feeding people who were Israelites. But here at the feeding of the 4,000, he's in a Gentile area. And uh, he's feeding a bunch of Gentile people who lived in these towns on the edge of Galilee. And even the baskets, the word that is used there to describe the baskets where they gathered up the food, that's a, that's a particularly Gentile type of basket, large basket that Gentiles would have used. So Mark is trying to help us understand who Jesus is, that he's not just a Savior for Israelites, for Jews, but he's the Savior of the whole world, for all people, from people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Now, this is not something that the people in Mark's day or the people in Jesus' day were expecting. They had a preconceived notion about the Messiah and about what he would come and do. And I've said this many times as we've looked over these first seven chapters and now into the eighth chapter of Mark, uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the mission of Jesus. If he is the Messiah, as many people have rightly identified him as, then they were thinking that he would be some political leader. And I've mentioned that uh, on occasion. But they had an idea that the Messiah would come once. He would come once and he would heal the oppressed and he would punish the oppressors, namely, in this context, the Romans. They were dominating Israel. They had the power. They wanted Jesus to come in and get rid of the Romans and, and be the, the king like David was, where Jerusalem and Israel was at its peak and its power. They wanted that back. However, Jesus comes twice in two stages. In the first stage that we read about in the Bible, he comes in weakness to make sacrifice for sins, to help the oppressed, but only in the second stage, at his second coming, and this, we're, we're talking about this at Advent, is perfect timing, it's the perfect sermon to be preaching on the first Sunday of Advent. 
This second coming, he completes the mission. Uh, He puts down all the uh, oppression of his church and he destroys all evil and he ushers in the new heavens and new earth. This two-stage approach to the mission of the Messiah threw off the religious leaders and it even uh, befuddled the disciples. They don't fully understand. That's why Peter gets rebuked. He says, you can't die. You're not going to die. You're the Messiah. You're going to be powerful and we're going to reign with you. They still had that misconception. Even John the Baptist didn't understand uh, the true nature, and he was in doubt. He was sending his, his disciples on to, to say, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for someone else? He didn't quite get the full uh, mission of Jesus. So when we see here in verse 10 through 12, the Pharisees demanding a sign, they are looking for something very peculiar, very special. He, he's already given... A countless signs that testify to what kind of Messiah he is. We've already seen it in the feeding of the 4,000. He's a Messiah who's come to give the bread of life to not just Jews but to Gentiles as well, to the whole world. Other uh, miracles point to Jesus' mission in different ways, but they all do that. When the Pharisees are asking for a sign, they are asking for Jesus to confirm that he is the kind of Messiah they expect him to be. When they are asking for a sign from heaven, the the fact that they they ask specifically for a sign from heaven means that they're asking something very specific. They wanted him to do something that would signal Israel's deliverance from her enemies and the crushing defeat of those enemies, a sign in the sky, something fantastic, something that would remove all doubt and would give them assurance that he was going to come and, and wipe out the people. But so far... He had not fit in their box. Everything about him is in antithesis to what they expected the Messiah to be. So they were not really wanting a sign so that they could bolster their belief. They were testing him, it says. They were saying, you are certainly not, be, you are certainly not the Messiah. You can't be the Messiah. You're not acting like the Messiah. So if you are the Messiah, give us a sign. Okay, he's not going to give us a sign. That confirms our unbelief. That's where they're headed with this whole thing. They want this sign. Because they have preconceived notions about who Jesus is, they cannot see who Jesus is. They have a false assumption. He's not confirming their false assumption, and therefore they write him off. Now that is true of us as well. Even the disciples themselves, they are beginning to understand, but still they struggle with their preconceived notions about who Jesus is. And it's not until uh, the book of Acts, when Jesus is ascended, that they really start getting it fully when you see Peter preaching at Pentecost. Because even in the first chapter of Acts, they're asking, you know, is it now that you're going to restore Israel? Are you going to bring Israel back to his power now that you've uh, rose up from the dead? No, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So even the disciples struggle with preconceived notions. And if it's true of them, I mean, the disciples weren't 12 of the stupidest men in the world, uh, nor were they rocket scientists. They were a mishmash of tax collectors and, and fishermen and just normal people like you and me. And we need something to help us understand who Jesus is. And just like them, we need our preconceived notions uh, thrown to the side and let us come to Jesus with some openness so we can really grasp who he is 
and what he's come to do for us. So preconceived notions are a danger. We want God to fit in our box, and if he doesn't fit in our box, then we write him off. But we need to come with an open heart and open mind to his word and say, what, what does this say about him? Who was he? I mean, look, it, if you look at just history, not even the Bible, but history, who is more influential in the history of the world than Jesus Christ? There is none other. I mean, he tops them all. He has uh, changed the course of history by his appearance in the world. This is just historical facts. Now, if you're just going to write Jesus off because it's not the cool thing or it's not something that is in vogue at the moment that people follow Jesus and, and look to his teachings and you just write him off just because everybody else is, well, that's just foolish. This is the most important person who's ever walked the face of the earth. You owe it to yourself to at least look at what is written about him in his word, to, to, to look yourself with an openness and say, who is Jesus and what did he, is there anything to this? And find out for yourself. So I want to encourage you that way. If you're, a, if you're not a believer today uh, or, or if uh, you're skeptical of who Jesus is, that's okay. But come with an openness to his word and find out who he is and, and wrestle with that. Don't just write him off because everybody else does. So there's danger. This is the second thing. There's danger in unbelief. We see here uh, the Pharisees are demanding a sign. They are demanding a sign in their unbelief. They're, they're saying, give me, give me some evidence. Give me some evidence. And a lot of people say this today. They want evidence. Prove it. Prove that God exists. But because he does not fit their preconceived notion, there is no proof. They, they don't come with an open heart. They don't come with, an, with a, a commitment to say, you know, let me, let me hear what you have to say to me. Let me let you, let me let you open my heart, my mind to the truth. And because of that, the Pharisees miss it. And the disciples even can be in danger of, of missing it. Because Jesus warns them in the boat. You know, they're arguing about bread. And, and he's saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Um, and of Herod. He's saying don't be like them. Don't be influenced by them, by their unbelief. You know, they want a sign. You have the Pharisees on one hand, they were very religious. And over here you have Herod. This is not the Herod of the Christmas story. This is his son. This is the one who beheaded John the Baptist. Very wicked. He heard John the Baptist preaching. He would often listen to John the Baptist, but he never would really listen and embrace what John the Baptist was preaching and teaching about the Messiah. And he ends up caving in to peer pressure and having John the Baptist beheaded. So Jesus warns the disciple, you can be uh, religious, you can be wicked like Herod, but both of those uh, are still in unbelief. You can be an unbelieving religious person. See, it's not about being religious it's not about being wicked. It's about being open to who Christ is and not being swayed by the opinions of the world, whether they're religious opinions or evil opinions. Signs won't change that. You have to come to Christ with humility. Even the disciples don't get it fully. And us as well. 
You know, we who are committed fully to Christ and who He is, and what, we can come with our notions, and you know, none of us gets it fully because we're sinners and we're broken. And that's why we have the healing of the blind man here. You say, this is just a, a bunch of different episodes hung together, but they all hang together beautifully. Mark is proving a point to us here in chapter 8. The healing of the blind man. Uh, we know from all the other miracles that we've encountered in the first seven chapters that Jesus can heal a blind man with a word. He doesn't have to touch him. He doesn't have but here we have a man healed partially, and Jesus does a lot of things to the man uh, to get him to partially see, and then puts his hands on him again, and then he fully sees. It's a picture Mark's giving us of spiritual blindness of the disciples. The disciples are in the boat. They're arguing about the bread. Jesus says, you still don't get it. You don't understand. And then you have this episode of the blind man seeing a little bit and then being fully restored. And that's what's happening with the disciples. They're beginning to see, but they don't get it fully. And then you have Peter starting to get it more fully. Because after the healing of the blind man, you have the episode where Jesus asks, Who do people say that I am? And Peter says, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's starting to get it. He's saying, You're the Messiah. And we have seen all that you've done, all the evidence that you've given, all the signs that you've already given. And we know that based on that, you are a Messiah, but probably different than we're thinking. But he's recognizing a little bit of who Jesus is, but needs to understand even more, as we see at the end of the chapter. He's like that blind man. The disciples are like the blind man, getting it in stages, learning and growing. And the same is true with us. Unbelief is, is an influencer. There's a lot of unbelief in our world today. But we need not let that discourage us or keep us back from opening ourselves to Christ and submitting to him. So just like this man, this is the third thing. There is a healing for spiritual blindness. And it really does take place in, with two stages, I would say. First of all, there has to be this humility that I've been talking about. Uh, you have to come with an openness. It's just like me with the Indian food. You know, as long as I was closed off and did not uh, listen to the evidence and uh, the testimony of my friends, I was closed off to it. And I was like, I don't want that strange food. It's not what I grew up with, and I don't even want to try it. See, unbelief kept me back. But finally, I opened myself up to it, to try it, to taste and see that the Lord is good, as the Bible tells us. And it was by that experience that I come to love that food and come to love Christ as well. It's only as you taste and open yourself up to it that you can really understand who Christ is and what he came to do. And yet it's in stages. We have to continue to come to him humbly, opening ourselves to his word and saying, what, what does God want to say to me? What is God teaching me? How can I bring my life into line with his word? How can I embrace the truth of the gospel and let it influence the way that I live my life? So we have to come, first of all, in humility. Like the blind man says, you know, I, I see a little bit, but I can't see clearly. I need you to continue to do something to me. And that shows us the second stage, that we have to come to Christ for enlightenment. Jesus must do it. The blind man is healed supernaturally, 
and our hearts have to be healed supernaturally as well. Our eyes, eyes of our heart have to be opened supernaturally. When, when Matthew records Peter's confession, when Peter says, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. It wasn't something that he did. It wasn't that he was smarter than the other disciples. It was because God opened his eyes so that he could see. So as we come to the Lord, and we have to recognize that, yes, like the blind man, we are blind. We need understanding. We need help to see. We have to come recognizing that fact, that we're broken and, and we're not experts. And we have to come to Christ to heal us and to open our eyes and to give us insight. And that's the only way that we can be healed from our spiritual blindness. But the first step is that humility, dropping our preconceived notions and opening ourselves up to the possibility that that Jesus is the Messiah. and He may be quite different than uh, what we think he is, but let the Word of God dictate to us who Jesus is and what he came to do for us. I want to encourage you with that today uh, as we uh, consider these things from God's Word and as we look to be the kind of people that... God has called us to be. So let's pray together now and ask the Lord to open our eyes.